Um, as history uh, kind of moves on and marches on, way beyond, I guess, your last breath, how will people remember you? Jephthah, the, the main character in, in view today, will, remembered, will be remembered, I guess, for a number of reasons. And Judges 10 through to Judges 12 is, is littered, I guess, with a number of memorable incidences, isn't it? But that is essentially what the, judge, the whole book of Judges has been like, isn't it? Memorable story after memorable story. Think about what we've had. Back to Judges 3, we had a very fat man named Ehud who was stabbed with a long sword. We had a woman driving a tent peg through a man's skull. We've, we've, we've had humour, sometimes very, very uncomfortable humour. But we've also had these moments of great joy as well, as God has brought victory after victory after victory for his people who are undeserving. And who does God use? What is the kind of the human agency of each of those victories? Well, it's been these judge deliverers, you might say. And each one that God chooses, that we've looked at it in consecutive weeks, has been the most unlikely the most inappropriate person, the most unqualified person that you could perhaps find. And Jephthah, this man that we're looking at today, he's no exception. Yes, he's a man, a very gifted man in many ways. He has the gift of the gap. I know we have some of you guys amongst us who have that gift of the gap. He's a great speaker. He's a political genius, a great diplomat in many ways. But what about his heart? And that is the problem. Like Gideon, if you see in chapter 11, verse 1, the same phrase is used. He's a mighty warrior. But his CV, if you like, from that point on, isn't looking so hot. Have a look at some of the other things at the beginning of chapter 11. He was the son of a prostitute from a dysfunctional family. Dysfunctional because his half-brothers booted him out because they wanted to keep the inheritance for himself and they shoved him off to a neighbouring land. Uh, To top off his CV, he then attracted a group of, it says, adventurers. Now, I think that's a very polite way of putting it to bandits, as we saw in the previous chapter with Gideon. It's just our translation being nice, I think, to us. It probably means, and most scholars agree, that at this time, at the beginning of chapter 11, he's essentially a kind of the boss of an underground crime kind of group uh, of bandits or adventurers. So imagine, just if you can, just for a moment, imagine a complete outcast, a criminal, the kind of guy that Tim takes down, you know, from a broken home. Now imagine that person walking out the front door of number 10 as the next prime minister. Jephthah was totally unsuitable in character and background, yet God raises him up to be the saviour, the leader of his people. And we see, yeah, it's been an inevitable and slightly boring repetition throughout the book, but have a look at it again. It sounds like a broken record. Chapter 10, verse 6. God's provider is going to provide a a leader, a saviour, if you like, but look at what the Israelites are doing again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And here we get into that cycle that we've seen throughout Judges. And it's going to come up on the screen. There it is. It begins with the sin. Again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if you just turn back to those beginning verses of chapter 10, through the leadership of Tola and Jaya, that God's people had known some stability. 
The fact that very little is written about those two leaders suggests that, well, there's not much controversy in their leadership. But now they probably led fairly well. But when Jair died, was buried in Camon in verse 5, the Israelites, what happens to them? They completely go to town. That is, look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 10. They didn't just serve one idol, which is what we've seen throughout the book of Judges. What do they do now? They take on every single idol they can possibly find. And actually, the list there is of seven different types of idols. They simply just don't care at all what God thinks. Their hard hearts have kind of anaesthetised them, if you like, to what God's will is for their lives. Be warned if that's you. And what does God do? Have a look at verse 7. God responds, as only he can and must do, with righteous anger. He brings a double enemy this time. Notice the double, because it's not been a double before. This time it's Ammonites and Philistines. As ever the people respond, look at verse 10. It's a cry, but once again we see it to be a cry of regret rather than repentance. And God knows this. He knows their cry is not from their hearts, as I guess he knows when our cries of repentance are not from our hearts. Oh, we may know what to say. We may know even how to sound repentant, a little kind of, you know, oh, I'm losing my voice, I'm a bit teary, and so on. But God knows their hearts as he knows ours. I want us to think just for a moment. It's a little aside, but I hope it's helpful because it, it should bring a lot of what we've seen in the book of Judges together. Uh, in a sense, I want to be able to show what true repentance really looks like because that's the issue here in verse 10 of chapter 10. They're not truly repentant. These are kind of crocodile tears in a sense. I guess what we've been learning throughout the book of Judges, two things, uh, what true repentance really is. I guess we've seen throughout Gideon and, and the other judges that true repentance really is a sorrow for the sin. And not just the consequences of the sin. Do you see the difference? True repentance has sorrow for the actual sin itself, not just oh, I'm in a bit of a pickle now. I'm in a bit of a difficult situation. The consequences, it's a sorrow for the sin. That's what true repentance is. Secondly, true repentance is a sorrow over the bad motives, not just a bad behaviour. That is, true repentance is something of our hearts and our minds, not just what we do. And like here in Judges 10, often people, they can come to church, they can pray the prayers, they can lead the Bible studies, they can do all of these things, but in so doing, they deceive themselves to think, oh, well, if I do these little bits of repentance, kind of piecemeal repentance, I'll be okay with God. His mercy will cover everything up. Everything will be fine. That is true. God is infinitely merciful to a degree. But does that mean that you and I can behave just as we want? What if someone, for example, persistently sins, persistently says, I know what God you want for me in my life, but I'm not going to do it. Can God forgive that? Is it that God cannot forgive? No. God is infinite forgiving and infinitely merciful. But in the choices that we all make, as we choose to turn away from God's word, the problem is, and many of you might know this, in our hard-heartedness, in a sense, what we can do is kill off our desire to repent. 
And that is what persistent sin does. It hardens your heart. Until the po- you get to a point in your life, maybe about a particular sin, you say, I just don't care about that anymore. God is always willing to forgive those who truly repent. But be warned, because persistently sinning leads to a hardening of your heart. And at some point, you may find yourself just down the road and you go, I just don't care what God says anymore. Be warned. And the Israelite people were were a bit like this. Uh, And like many people that we know, uh, they were using God. Dale Ralph Davis, the great preacher, commentator, he described them like this. He says they, they were essentially living out a bomb shelter religion. And by that he meant, times are tough now. The consequences of their sin have come along. They're feeling the pressure. And they're using God just in like a bomb shelter. They call upon him just to help him out in the, in the difficult times. He put it this way, let me quote. God is like a, a great warm vending machine in the sky into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. And that is what the people were doing here. They're in great distress and they're turning to the big vending machine in the sky. They cry out to God, just like every other time, relieve the pressure, please, God. But the tragedy here, I think, and maybe this is true for you, I don't know. You just become too accustomed to the mercy of God. And God now, what he does for the people here, he sends a kind of warning shot across their bowels. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 13. You have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. And verse 14, have a look at it if you want, is a shock, isn't it? Is God abandoning his people here? Now, one scholar put it this way. He said, the Lord is saying something like this. I know what this cry of yours is. It's merely a cry for help, which may as well be addressed to the Baals instead of me. And so what we see then is a change. Verse 16, you see that their their behavior begins to change. They get rid of the, the, the other idols and real repentance begins. But notice that God's response here. It's not because of the sincerity of their repentance. Have they repented hard enough that God will be merciful? Can you imagine if that were true for us? If, if our hope for forgiveness and mercy was only judged on how good our repentance was, or the intensity of our repentance, can you imagine that? We would only ever have partial hope, wouldn't we? No, you see, our hope like Israel's hope, is only based on the intensity of God's compassion and love for you and me. God could not bear the suffering of his people under the Ammonites and the Philistines, and therefore in his kindness, in his grace, and in his forgiving love, that's the mover, if you like, here. He provides a judge. A saviour for his people. And a little aside here, but this is the Old Testament. I hope you realise that. Of all the kind of caricatures of the Old Testament, notice this is all about the grace and the love and the kindness of God being poured out on his people. I hope it gives you, if you like, a little glimmer to show that, that if you like, the centre point of the whole Bible is Jesus, the one who ultimately is God's love and kindness being poured out. On his people. 
And so we get to Jephthah, it's taken us a while, but we've seen he's a bit of a genius with his words, he's flawed in character, but it's his words actually, they're the things that are going to frame the whole rest of this passage, if you like. And that's why the points you'll see on your sheets are really to do with his words. Jephthah actually delivers four speeches, and we're going to go through each of those very, very quickly. They're all to different groups, and they're all very different lengths as well. And uh, we see at the beginning of chapter 11, Jephthah, his first speech is for him gaining control, power, as the leader of God's people. The context is to the people of his own hometown. We see that they despise him at first, they send him away. But then you get to verse 6, and it seems Jephthah is now needed, the mighty warrior that he is. And so what does Jephthah do? He skillfully bargains with the people of his hometown to not only become the leader in battle, the great warrior but also the leader after the battle as well. Their Lord, essentially. So Jephthah's first speech centres around him becoming a judge. And that's our first point there. It's a speech to gain authority. Let's follow with me if you can. Verse 7 onwards there. Jephthah asks to be the head after the battle. We see that in 11, verse 11. And the elders of Gilead agree to that as well. And at first glance, you might just want to say, you might want to kind of get, you know, crack open a nice bottle of wine. You might want to get a steak out and have a braai. That's what Matthew would think down here. You know, and pat Jephthah on the back. He's, he's done a great job here. There's a wonderful piece of diplomacy here. He's got himself not only the leader of the army, but the leader afterwards. Well done, Jephthah. In fact, you might want to say, I want to be a bit like Jephthah there. I mean, what a great guy. What a good negotiator. If only I was like that Monday to Friday in my job. And many note that this speech of Jephthah is actually very like that of God's, if you like, um, communication with his people in the previous verses in chapter 10. I don't know if you saw that. Look at what they both essentially say. Let me kind of spell it out for you. Both of them say, why have you come looking for me? You have turned your back on me. And now both of them then say, now when you're in trouble, you've come to me and asked me to be your rescuer. Both kind of speeches saying the same thing. And both end with that saying, I'm going to be your head, essentially, your Lord and your leader. See, Jephthah talks very like God speaks to his people. He's very clever in the way that he's framing what he is saying. But the sad thing about Jephthah is he's only speaking half-truths. Because sadly, Jephthah only wants to lead for himself. He doesn't care for the people as God cares for his people who are in anguish. He just wants all the power and glory himself. What I'm going to try and do is contrast a little bit of Jephthah with Jesus as we go through. And and hear the contrast if you can. Look what Jephthah does. He offers his leadership for his gain. At the cost of others. What does Jesus do? He offers his leadership but for our gain. And who bears the cost? Himself. It's a big contrast, isn't it? As as Jesus says in John 10, I lay my life down for my sheep. We've been learning that this year, haven't we? And and further on in that chapter, no one can snatch him out of my hands. What he's given is safe and secure, eternal life in him. See, Jephthah thinks of himself, Jesus thinks of you. 
And so Jephthah's uh, first speech, though very skillful in those first verses, uh, opening verses of chapter 11, verse 7 to 11, they are skillful, but they're not sacrificial. It's a speech to gain authority for himself. Now, the audience for the second speech, very different. Uh, have a look at it now. But the speech is no less crafted. It's brilliant in many ways. Verse 12 through to verse 27. He now addresses the, the leaders of the Ammonite army, the enemy, if you like. Let's go to our second point there, speech to bring peace here. Jephthah begins his leadership by sending this message, doesn't he, to the Ammonite leaders of the, of the army there, the front line, essentially says, guys, what are you doing here? Verse 12, essentially, that's what he's saying. Verse 13, the answer comes back, you've taken back our land, give it back peacefully. So Jephthah then sends this message, and here's the content of his big speech, if you like. Have a look at it from verse 15 through to verse 27. Uh, loads and loads of scholars right? just oodles about this it's a massive massive world piece of um, kind of studied um, kind of documentation there but it really has four main points so let me kind of spell them out to you because time is uh, short essentially these are the main points of Jephthah's negotiation he says these things first he says we didn't take your land when we took it it belonged to someone else that's the first point that Jephthah makes isn't it at the beginning of those verses the second point he makes is this. He said, God gave it to us. And if God gave it to us, he is the only one that can ask for it back, not you. You've got no claim on it. This is God's to give and God's to take back. That's his second point. And I guess there's great confidence. Let me say something about that if I can. There's great confidence in Jephthah's diplomacy here, isn't there? He's confident in God, in the Lord here. And he has so much confidence that he encourages the Ammonites. He says, Ammonites, you consider what your God can give you. Now, I've got so much confidence in, in Yahweh, the Lord, my God, the God of the Bible, that I'm willing for you to have a look at him. And, and you see what your God can offer you. And you weigh it up. See what Chemosh will provide for you. And then see what God provides for us. And I guess that's why Christians around the world, we encourage uh, through all sorts of political means and, and, and throughout our country as well, we encourage that kind of freedom of speech, that dialogue between, between people of differing views. Why? Because like Jephthah here, we have great confidence in the God who does provide, who has demonstrated himself to be the ruler, the leader of all creation that's why we long for kind of rational logical debate we don't have to oppress we don't have to scare people to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord we have confidence in a loving gracious kind God so we can say to others we can say check out you know, all these other so called gods see what they offer because nothing compares with the greatness and the kindness and the love of the God of the Bible. Let me get to the third point quickly. Uh, Jephthah, in his, in his speech, essentially then says, hey, look, there's, been, there's this guy called Balak, okay? And you see that in verse 25. He was once angry about you, um, God's people coming in and taking the land, but we sorted that out. There's now a truce between Balak, his people, and God's people. And he then, Jephthah, turning to him, said, are you better than him? Or should you follow him? And his example, Jephthah encourages and the fourth point that Jephthah makes in this amazing speech is that he says, it's been 300 years, guys. 
It's 300 years since we took the land. Why have you suddenly got angry now? So let me just go over those four points very quickly. It wasn't your land when we took it. It was God who gave it to us. Other people haven't been as upset as you have. That's a Balak point. And then lastly, he says, why have you taken 300 years to suddenly get annoyed? They're the four points he makes in his speech. But as we see, verse 28, of all that great speech, then what happens? Verse 28, look at it. Oh, and war comes, straight away. But let's think about the speech for a moment, because it's brilliant, but only in part. It is skillful. It is very diplomatic in that way. He does seek peace, doesn't he? That's his aim, Jephthah's aim in, in the whole of the speech. He seeks peace. But the thing about the way that he seeks peace is he seeks peace in his way, not God's way. He wants to keep the peace, if you like, the status quo. He wants to let the Ammonites, you carry on doing what you're doing, worshipping Chemosh, doing as you're doing now, and we'll do our thing over here, thank you very much. But the peace that Jephthah speaks so brilliantly to get is just a temporary peace. It isn't the peace that God seeks throughout the whole of the Bible, the eternal peace that he offers for those who turn to him as Lord and worship him as such. And there again, I think, within the great brilliant speech of Jephthah, we see a glimmer of Jesus, but only a glimmer. Because Jesus didn't preach for a temporary peace. He never said to anyone, hey, you guys over there, you just carry on as you're doing. We'll do the stuff over here. They'll follow me as Lord and Saviour, but you just carry on. No, Jesus never preached in that way. He said again and again and again, if you carry on living your life that way, worshipping gods like Chemosh and all the other gods of materialism and whatever it may be in our, our age, He said that road leads to destruction, an eternal destruction. Jesus said, come and follow me, and that will lead to eternal life. So you see, the contrast again is so stark, isn't it, between Jephthah and Jesus. Jesus offers this, sorry, Jephthah offers a temporal peace. As he says, you know, you keep doing your thing. Keep offering yourself to idols and submitting to your gods. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to offer eternal peace. But he says, you need to do my thing. That is, you need to smash up your idols and submit to me. Jephthah, of course, should have said that to the Ammonites. His clever speech is clever in words, but it lacks the will and the heart of God. When God's people were ever called to take the land, they were firstly asked to go and find peace with the people. That was the initial offer. They were never called to just run in, have a battle and take it over. No, Deuteronomy 20 is very clear, verse 10, that they always went in and said, we we want peace if possible. But here the the offer of peace wasn't taken up. The Ammonites wanted a battle. And so as the battle kind of commenced... As they turn down the offer of peace, we see that in verse 28. That is why God then sends his spirit onto Jephthah in verse 29, for the task ahead of him. 
God longs to alleviate the, the misery of his people. So he enables, by the Spirit descending on, on his judge, to, if you like, take them into battle, to win victory, to take down the Ammonites. And here we get to Jephthah's third speech. It's a very short speech, and it's addressed to God this time. Different audience, this time it's to God. So here we see um, Jephthah's speech to offer sacrifice. And I guess here we get to probably the most harrowing part of the whole story. Here Jephthah once again opens his mouth. It's with great passion, with great zeal, probably great skill as well. But he's not thinking about the consequences this time, is he? So he says, God, if you bring me victory over the Ammonites, I will sacrifice something to you as an offering. The first thing that comes through my front door when I come back from winning this battle. Well, we, we know the story. We heard it, don't we? Verse 32, he wins the battle. Verse 34, he comes back and his beloved daughter walks through the front door. He tears his clothes. His heart sinks. But what is Jephthah doing here? What a crazy vow to make. At best, what, what, would, what does he expect? He comes back from battle. What's the best scenario for Jephthah as he walks back from battle? What? First thing to come through his door? His cat? His dog? What would be the best thing? Guinea pig? You know, sorry, I was hearing about guinea pig today. You know, in a sense, what could be the best scenario? Well, that's still not very nice. Maybe a household servant. The worst case? Wife or only child. What's he doing? Jephthah's got a whole heap of things wrong here. Note that it was actually illegal for God's people to ever be involved in human sacrifice. And so when his daughter comes through the door, there's no reason why he couldn't have broken that vow. Because the whole way through the Bible, a person is worth way more than a vow. But even then, let's imagine that the penalty for breaking a vow was death. Just imagine that for a moment. It wasn't, but imagine. Why didn't Jephthah take the penalty himself? If he's an honourable, loving father, he would have taken that for his daughter and died in her place. But he doesn't. So Jephthah goes ahead, kills his daughter. We must note that that is not something God asked him to do or wanted him to do. This is an absolute disgusting tragedy. But do recognise what is going on here. The Spirit of God comes on in verse 29. He brings a great victory for his people through Jephthah. But in his zeal to serve God and speak for God, he says way more than he ever should have done. He's so keen to serve God, but he's so stupid in the way that he goes about it. It's a small example, and please don't see a direct parallel here, but you know, you know those kind of people, they're, they're so excited sometimes to share the good news about Jesus, they, they just speak without ever thinking. They're Christians, but they're utterly insensitive in some situations. And I, I hope you see the contrast once again between Jephthah and Jesus. Like, like Jephthah, Jesus, of course, has the Spirit upon him. He does God's will. There's a victory, of course, won. And he's willing to fight whatever the cost. And at that point you're thinking, Jeff, Jesus, they're, 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 they're pretty similar in this situation, aren't they? But look at the nuance here. Look what Jephthah says, essentially. He says there's an important victory to be won against the Ammonites. 
And he says, we, we will pay any price. And what Jesus says is the same nearly. He says there's a really, really important victory to be won. But I will pay any price. See, the price that Jeff had to pay was this was stupid and unnecessary because his daughter died. But the price that Jesus was willing to pay was lovingly, sacrificially paid as he stretched out his arms on a cross, bringing the greatest victory over death itself. Jeff has said something stupid, Jesus says something sacrificial, which is the big difference here, isn't it? Jeffrey, in a sense, is a kind of he's a part leader, isn't he? He's, he's not quite there. He's good with his words, yet he lacks the character to back it up. And Jesus never lacks, does he? Never ever. Let's look at the last speech. I've got uh, two or three minutes, and that that is really it. Um, so the first speech to gain authority, the second to bring peace, the third to offer sacrifice, and the last to create division. The story goes something like this. You know it well. Some of God's people, the Ephraimites at this point, they're hacked off because Jephthah didn't ask them to go into battle against the Ammonites. They're kind of going, why didn't you involve us? And the same issue had happened before with Gideon. Gideon didn't ask the Ephraimites to join in and they were hacked off. What did Gideon do? He went to the Ephraimites in chapter 8 verse 1 and he calmed them down. He had a great speech. He just said, hey, come on guys, let's do what God says. You know, leave it alone. Well... Jephthah does that. He says some words. Look at that. Chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. <laughs> but then verse 4 is quite stark, isn't it? Oh, he just goes and kills them all. It just goes straight into battle. And that's it. And he does defeat them in battle. But as the Ephraimites retreat to go home, Jephthah's men at the fords of the Jordan, so the shallow bits where the men could cross, um, they've gone out to a plain. They've had their war. As they're coming back over the fords of Jordan to go back to Ephraim, what do they do? They secure all the fords of Jordan, uh, Jephthah's men, and they use clever words, if you like. Clever words, again, in order to create division. The soldiers of Jephthah were asked, every man who crosses Jordan, they had to say the word shibboleth, didn't they? And if they could not say the word shibboleth because of their accent, essentially, and they said the word sibboleth, which and 42,000 of them died. Shibboleth is a phrase that has been passed down through the ages. You can have a look at the, in the dictionary if you want later on. That's why West Wing did an episode on it. It is proverbial that of inclusion. It's the password of being in rather than being out, essentially. And Jephthah created a, a cultural division within God's people. The accent brought the death of all those men, as we see in verse 6. Do you notice the contrast again between Jesus, who encourages a cultural inclusion because the gospel goes out to all nations? The division that Jesus brings, of course, is a spiritual one. Those that put their faith in him and those that do not put their faith in him. In that sense, you see, faith, as West Wing, I think, very well puts, faith is the true shibboleth, the true mark of being one of God's people. You see, many of you, and you'll know people like this, you know, people go to church, people say all the prayers, they can sing the songs with great vigour, 
But without faith, all you can say is Sibboleth. And you're excluded. Faith is the true Sibboleth. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is the true division. And the question is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Jephthah again has used words for his interest against other people. He creates a division here, but Jephthah has all the skills with words. But the story ends with him working out a way to exclude people rather than include God's people. God's people. Whereas the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus, in Matthew 28, says, let's go and make disciples of all nations. And I trust that's why we're here. To encourage that, to pray for that. That as we hear of the great news of Jesus Christ here today, that we might want to go out and invite people to come to the true shibboleth. Faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at a man like Jephthah, may he be a warning to us. Maybe a warning of that kind of half-hearted leadership of a man with such good words but with no heart for you. In a sense, we've seen a man who uh, was a leader of Israel but they got someone just like themselves who talks well but lacks character. Heavenly Father, may, may none of us be Jephthahs in that way, full of words but lacking faithful action. In a sense, this story is here to to disgust us in many ways. But also it's here to point us forward. To point us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he led by serving. He made peace by dying. And he made a sacrifice of himself. And yes, he did set up a crossing, not over a ford, but between this life and eternity. And he did it not to keep people out, but to invite all nations in. Heavenly Father, may we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our leader, our saviour, and our king. Amen.